Our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to take the whole chapter, Genesis 25. So that's verses 1 to 34. And before we read that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we sit now under the word of God, we pray, our Father, that you would help us. Please help me as I speak. Please help us all as we hear. Lord, may we be given humble and worshipful hearts that are prepared to receive the words for that which they truly are, the very word of God. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 25, verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephur, Hanok, Abida, and Eldar. All these were the children of Keturah. God gave Sorry, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Memre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Nafish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. 
Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. I'll um, just put in a subnote there. If you're wondering what that means, Edom sounds very much like the Hebrew word for red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Amen, and may God bless his word to us. So we're basically looking, as it were, at three generations here. We have the closing out of Abraham's life. We have the account of Isaac and Rebekah bringing twins into the world. And then we have the beginning of the conflict of those twins. And all of us who are familiar with the scripture would realize that ultimately Jacob is the one who will become the one that bears the promised seed. He's the one who will continue in the covenant relationship with God. That is a continuation of Abraham's covenant relationship with God. In terms of how the scripture uses that which we just read in both the Old and the New Testament, the scripture uses Genesis chapter 25 to prove the electing grace of God. To prove that God has his plan or his intention to save whom he will. There are some who are saved. There are some who are not saved. And God had long ago chosen whom the saved people were. We'll look, we will talk more about that as we get um, further on into the sermon. I'm basically going to try and cover this in three main sections. We're going to talk first of all of Abraham and what we're told about Abraham. Then we're going to talk of Isaac and what we're told of Isaac. And then we're going to talk of Jacob and Esau. And then at the end of that, I'm just going to try and make some applications. So it's going to be, in a manner of speaking, a very... Um, standard sermon presentation. There's going to be points and there's going to be application at the end. First of all, let's consider Abraham, what we're told about Abraham. First of all, we're told that Abraham lived to a good long age. He got to 175 years old, nothing like the ages of those who lived before the flood and nothing like the age of Noah who lived after the flood. But nevertheless, he got to be 175 years old. We're told that Abraham took concubines. We want to think about this and think fairly carefully. In terms of the law of the land in which he lived, in terms of the law of the world at that time, he was doing nothing unusual and he was doing nothing wrong. According to the ways of the world and according to the law that we have from that age and that time, there's, there, there is um, some ancient documents. There's one called the Code of Hammurabi, which is a legal code. Um, 
given in the name of a king called Hammerabai, a wealthy elderly man taking a wife or a concubine when he had become a widow was nothing unusual and laws were written um, to deal with the legal consequences of such an action. According to the world around about him, as I've said, he did nothing wrong. It's the same as when he took Sarah's slave, Hagar, as a wife. According to the law and the custom and the time in which he lived, according to those things, he was doing that which is right. But I don't believe that Scripture gives us these things in order for us to say, therefore, that's okay. Therefore, you do these things and you're doing that which is right. When you consider the children that are born of these um, unions, Hagar and Keturah, and possibly there were more concubines, verse 6 of chapter 25 definitely has concubines in the plural. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. When you look at the children of that union, it appears that all Abraham was doing by straying outside of his marriage to Sarah, by straying outside of what you might call his covenanted marriage, the marriage of promise, all he seemed to be doing was raising up the enemies of his own offspring. He was basically setting up trouble for the chosen line on into the future. We'd already been told that the child of Hagar was going to be a wild donkey of the man who hated everybody and everybody would hate him. He would have his hand against everybody. Think of some of the names that you read there. Think of Midian. And if, um, well, we've been reading as a church, we've slowly worked our way through 1st and 2nd Kings and now we're in 1st and 2nd Chronicles. What kind of people were the Midianites? They were the enemies of the holy nation. They were conducting raids, they were to be feared. They were, there was almost constantly some kind of war going on with these people. So what do we say? Well, we're basically here um, thinking about something that is very applicable to today. We're God's people. We're the church. We've been made God's people by grace through faith. We are counted as those who are in Christ. We are considered to be the people who were born by the implanting of the word of God. That's the way the scripture describes it, for example, in 1 John. There's a standard in the world around about us. There are legal standards in the world around about us. There are things that can be legally done. But is everything that the world has called legal right for the people of God? And the answer is, no, it's not. Absolutely no, it's not. We're the people of God. We march to God's drumbeat. We're the people of God. We obey God's commandments. We don't do things the way the world says is okay. I mean, just think of just your typical standard man and woman relationship. I won't even go into, the, into any of the abominations. What is the wisdom of the world concerning a man and a woman, concerning a boy and a girl? Concerning marriage, cohabit, have yourself a nice, long, de facto relationship. Spend a whole lot of time living together before you decide to actually get married. And then once you get married, well, then don't have children. 
Build up your career, build up your wealth, do everything you want to do. Because having children is a drag and it holds you back and holds you down. Now, this is perfectly legal and right in the eyes of the world. And this is, we know this. This is the way the world around us lives. It's not right in the eyes of God. It's not right in the eyes of God. We don't enter into a marriage union after having entered into a worldly union. We get married in the sight of God. We form a covenant relationship and then we have all the blessings of God upon that relationship. That's what is right in the sight of God. That, that's what is right in the eyes of God. We do things God's way, not the world's way. Let's think of uh, the descendants of Abraham. Question. Who are the descendants of Abraham? Who are the offspring of Abraham? Who are called the offspring of Abraham? God had promised Abraham that many nations would come from his loins and that he would be a blessing to all the world. Well, are all these names that are given, is every name given here a name that is a blessing to all the world? And the answer is, concerning the children of Abraham, no, there's only one. Isaac. Abraham may have fathered many peoples through the world, but Abraham's, Abraham's offspring are those who are offspring through the promises. Isaac was born according to the promises of God. Isaac was born according to that which God gave to Abraham as a gift, not according to the ways of the world. Well, what we're looking at is electing grace. God electing those who are his people. Now, could any one of these people have been saved? And the answer is yes. How? Through the same faith that Abraham had. What would they have to do? They would have to do what anybody has to do to come into a state of being saved, into God's kingdom. You renounce that which is of your world or of the world of your people. You renounce that state in which you were born and by faith you take hold of the promises of God that have been given to the offspring of Abraham. And we find in the, New, in, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament that many times people who were not by blood the offspring of Abraham still shared in the faith of Abraham. Ruth, from the book of Ruth, was a Moabitess. She was not of the promised land. All of these people could have been called into the kingdom of God and all of these people could have been saved, but all of these people would had to have submitted to God as he revealed himself through Abraham and to Abraham. What else do we see in this little passage of the, of the ending of Abraham's life? Well, I want us to look at the ending of chapter 25, verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people and was gathered to his people. Who were those people? Well, a prominent one of those people would be Noah. Remember, as we've worked our way through Genesis, 
the genealogies have been very important, but Abraham shares the faith of Noah. Abraham shares the faith of God's faithful people. Abraham himself being at the head of a covenantal relationship, well, we find, for example, remember we read in um, the Gospel of Luke, we read at Luke chapter 16, that Lazarus was carried to the bosom or the side to a loving embrace with whom? Abraham. Because Abraham was set at the head of a covenant. And so Lazarus, in the story that Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 16, Lazarus is gathered to his people. And in this instance, or in that instance, his people are represented by Abraham, all who had died in the faith of Abraham. So Abraham's life, he takes concubines. It's okay according to the world around him, but no good thing comes of it. We have electing grace through the descendants of Abraham. Ishmael was not of the faith. Ishmael was not a bearer of the promises. And we have Abraham joining his people. He's going to the faithful people. Let's move on. Isaac's life. We move on to Isaac. Verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. We're actually told that that took 20 years. The, cho- the children were born when Isaac was 60 years old. If we look at verse 26, afterward his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So think of the similarities to the life of Abraham who had come before him and think of the differences. Both Rebekah and Sarah were barren. Both Rebekah and Sarah needed God to intervene in their lives to make them not barren, to give them children. But Isaac prayed for his wife because she was barren. The Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But what that little passage or that little sentence in verse 21 doesn't tell us is the Lord granted his prayer over 20 years. Over 20 years. So we've got to say something about Isaac at this moment. His life is much like Abraham's. His wife was barren until God gave him children. But but Isaac passed the 20-year test where Abraham, his father, had failed. That's to be noted. That is praiseworthy. 20 years. Prayed for something when he was 40. He got the answer when he was 60. 20 years of testing. 20 years of niggling doubts. But he practices 20 years of faithfulness. You know, there, there are things that I have prayed for for many years. I've, you know, I can think of one thing in particular. I've prayed for it for over 30 years, 34 years. It took that long and finally it came. And many times I doubted and many times I thought my prayers were forgotten. Many times I turned away. But God 
hears the prayers of his people. God grants their heart's desires because God has taken hold of his people's hearts and turned their hearts to his will. And then we come to the birth of Isaac's children. Notice here, we have Rebekah, two children within her womb. Basically, Rebekah goes and complains. Where it says at verse 22, the children struggled together, the word that's been um, translated as struggled, the children were striking each other, were smiting each other. The word often means cutting down. Striking, smiting, cutting down, crushing. All right, this was... This was no normal, oh, you know, that's a cute little kick coming out the side of her tummy. There was trouble here. Even before they were born, these children were at war. And Rebecca goes and asks, if, this, if it is thus, if things are going on like this, why does this happen to me? Is basically her prayer. And when it says she went to the Lord to ask, we must probably consider that she was actually praying with and in the presence of Isaac. Isaac was the head of her family. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Here's another similarity between Isaac and his father Abraham. In a manner of speaking, they lose a son. They lose a beloved son. Abraham, remember, loved Ishmael. Oh, that Ishmael would stand before you was the prayer of Abraham when God promised him a, a son of the promise, a child of the promise. Oh, but Ishmael would stand before you and God said, no, not going to happen. Well, Isaac is now going to have two sons and they are told that of those two sons, the younger shall be stronger than the older. The older shall be servant of the younger. Once again, God's electing grace, God making division. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans at Romans chapter 9, let's turn to Romans 9. Start reading at verse 1 of Romans 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written. And this is the quotation of Malachi that we read earlier. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
Paul goes on to say, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Wombmates who had done nothing either good or bad. And yet from before the time they were born, God had chosen one over the other. God had chosen one to be the bearer of the promises. God had chosen one to be the promised line from whom the saviour of all would come. And the other? Well, scripture says, I hated him. I hated him. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, let's turn to the book of Hebrews. Let's turn to Hebrews twelve sixteen concerning Esau. Start reading at verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone, Hebrews twelve fourteen, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau. Sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. This is the man. Esau. God hated him. God hated him. You know, when, when it says, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, is that saying God loves everybody in exactly the same way? Well, if you think it does, how do you reconcile that to other parts of Scripture? Consider, for example, Psalm 5. Psalm 5, starting at verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, and in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. I don't like it when I hear Christians, and and, and you often hear this from Christians. He's breaking God's heart. God's just sitting there in the heavens wishing that so-and-so would repent, wishing that he would turn his mind around, that he would come to Jesus as though God is utterly powerless, as though God couldn't make that happen. If God wants someone to repent, God will bring them to repentance. Where do we start when we start outside of Christ? Our starting point is that we are sinners, enemies of God and deserving of judgment and destruction. That's the starting point. Do you like justice? Do you think justice is good? Well, here's what justice says. Each and every one of us ought to be struck by the proverbial bolt of lightning and sent to hell and forgotten. That's what justice says. It's as simple as that. That's justice. We're sinners. 
We are completely undeserving of any blessing from God. We are deserving of the judgment of God and we ought not be given the next breath we breathe. If you want justice, that's justice. That's it. But there is mercy and mercy is also good. And God chooses to bestow his mercy on whomever he pleases. Not because they're good or special or right. Not for any of those reasons. Everybody starts off in the state of condemnation and justly so. Everybody starts off an enemy of God and that's what we deserve. There are no exceptions. There are none. The only one ever born who did not start off under the condemnation is Jesus himself. And people hated him so much they had to kill him because they could not stand to dwell in the presence of holiness. We start off condemned. It's mercy that brings us to the place of blessing. It's grace that brings us to the place of blessing. And so God's not doing anything wrong when he chooses one over another. He's actually being merciful. You see, for mercy to mean anything, it actually must be set against judgment. For mercy to mean anything, it must actually be accompanied by justice. Think about it. If everybody was just automatically saved because everybody is just automatically saved, well, there's no mercy. The very word mercy implies that that which is deserved is not being received. God has mercy on whomsoever he wills. And before Jacob and Esau were ever born... God knew that upon Jacob, he would have mercy. And upon Esau, his hatred, his just, holy hatred of sin and sinners would find a place to rest. Esau was born in a certain state, just like you and I were born in certain states. He was born a sinner without hope in the world, deserving of the judgment of God, and God passed him over. God needed to change nothing about Esau. All he had to do was leave him to his own devices. When someone is left to their own devices, they are left to condemnation. It's as easy as that. Mercy, grace, salvation, these things are acts of God changing people, getting them from one place, putting them in another place, changing them from one state putting them in another state, separating them from their sins as far as the east is from the west, to use the description of Psalm 103. God chose Jacob. But let me ask a question. Was Jacob a sinner? The answer is yes. And the scripture tells us that Jacob is a sinner. Um, My own family know, and they've probably heard me say it any number of times, You ask me who is my favourite Old Testament character? Well, guess what? We're about to get into studying his life. I love the life of Jacob. I love the, the narrative of his life. God takes a grasping heel grabber. He's a usurper. His name basically means a cheat. He's a cheat. He's a liar. He's a usurper. He's a heel grabber. All right. That idea that Esau was first born, but Jacob came out holding onto Esau's leg. 
The idea is from the very start, Jacob was trying to overcome his brother. And we'll see as we study the life of Jacob that this man was a sinner. You know, there are some people, if they tell you what the time is, you look at your own clock to make sure they're telling you the truth. And there are some people, they tell you the sky is blue and you just quick look up just to make sure they're not lying at this moment because they can't be trusted. And in some ways, that's how you could possibly describe Jacob. But it's also how you could describe Esau. We're going to see that, I hope. So let's move on. I'll just make one other point because it becomes relevant as we continue to study Isaac. Isaac knew that God had prophesied that Jacob would rule over Esau. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Yet here is Isaac's failing as a parent. Isaac, verse 28 of Genesis 25, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. (laughs) Later on, even though he's received the word of God that Jacob is the one to bear the promises and to be blessed, Isaac tries on the basis of food to change the providence of God and lay the blessing on Esau later on. We'll see the whole family's up to all sorts of dirty tricks. They're a crazy, sinful family, saved by grace, at least those who are saved. But they are indeed a crazy, sinful family. There's no doubt about it. Anyways, let's move on and look at what we're told about Jacob and Esau. My first point that I had down was that there is electing grace from even before birth, and we've spoken of that. The next point I had down concerning these two is that this is the conflict between the seeds, spoken of back in Genesis 3. Remember, there was going to be a seed of the serpent, there was going to be a seed of the woman, and there was going to be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. This is that same conflict once again being played out before our very eyes. I want us to now just close in on the closing, on the closing it's a paragraph in my Bible, the closing verses of Genesis 25, looking at from verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Now, let's try and um, pick this apart just a little bit. Basically, what Esau says to Jacob in the Hebrew is not without any kind of politeness. Basically, he comes in and he says, give me some of that red stuff, that red stuff. I'm famished. Not with any kind of politeness whatsoever. Give me some of the red stuff, the red stuff, man. Just give it to me. Therefore, his name was called Adam, which means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Stop, verse 31. Sell me your birthright now. Once again, we're in one of those situations which is right by the eyes of the world. I I spoke earlier, the Code of Hammurabi. The Code of Hammurabi actually allowed for a son to sell his birthright. Believe it or not, Jacob is doing what is right and normal in the eyes of the world around him. But it's selfish. It's manipulative. 
This is not nice. This is not the way family treats one another. You know, I've tried to hammer it into our own household, my own four children. You do whatever you can do for each other and you do it gladly and you expect nothing in return. It's your brother. It's your sister. Our children. You do whatever you can do for them and you expect nothing in return. Why? Because... We're a family. And, you know, Lisa and I, we've tried to hammer that into them all of their lives. That's not the way you do things, is it? You know, let me eat some of that red stuff. I'm exhausted. It's explosive. It's rude. He says red stuff twice. Let me eat some of the red stuff. The red stuff. I'm starving. Jacob, seeking for the advantage. Sell me your birthright now. Verse 32, Esau says, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. I want us to stop and think about what's being done here. Actually, we'll finish the verse, finish the passage. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay. In worldly terms, what does the birthright come to? Pretty much nothing. They don't own the land upon which they walk. They own livestock. There would be some gold and some silver. Remember, Abraham was a wealthy man. He gave it all to Isaac. Isaac's going to give it to one of his sons. But there's pretty much nothing. And what about the religion that's associated with the birthright? Well, to a worldly man, and we're told in Hebrews that Esau was sexually immoral and unholy. To a worldly man, these things are worthless. These things are worthless. We've got promises. The birthright is nothing more than possession of promises. And the very fact that it's called a promise implies that you don't yet have that which is promised. In Esau's mind, in the mind of this worldly man, what's he giving up? A promise that one day, somewhere far off into the future, my children will own the land upon which I'm walking. At the moment, we own a graveyard. That's what we've got. For religion... We've got this unknown, unseen God that you can't please and you can only do things according to his will. We're told that he was sexually immoral and unholy. He looks around at the nations around about him and sees that they're gods. Well, you can see them. He's an idolater. You can see their gods. You can understand their religion. It's easy. There's the God, you go in, you make your offering, you bring down some good luck upon yourself and then you can go and sleep with the temple prostitutes. A sexually immoral or unholy man like Esau. It's a simple religion, it's easy. This unknown God, unseen God, this stuff, you know, and they they build their altars of untreated rocks. You know, the altars that Abraham and Isaac built. They just 
whacked together stones and and made a raw altar. These nations around about us, they've got real temples and they've got priests dressed in nice clothes and they've got altars that are flash and polished and there's gold and silver in their temples. You see the way he's thinking. The birthright's not worth anything anyway. And he's a dishonest man. He's a dishonest man. Why do I say he's a dishonest man? Because later on he decides he wants his birthright. What's he thinking? Yeah, I said it 20 years ago. Who cares? I said one thing then. I'm saying another thing now. What's anyone going to do about it? To him, the birthright is nothing. But to Jacob, the supplanter, the heel grabber, the liar, the manipulator, the dealer. That's what Jacob is. You know, Jacob at the beginning is a very, very selfish man. Later on, as we get into the life of Jacob, we'll come to this situation where he's got two wives and two concubines, four women, and they are struggling amongst each other to be his favourites. Desperate to be his favourite, so much so that his own sons can barely look at each other. And to Jacob, that's just great. Here I am, I'm the centre of attention. I've got four women fighting over me. Oh, how much fun. That's literally the way he was thinking. I'm not saying he wasn't transformed. By the end of his life, Jacob is a, a, a saint, a man of faith. He's transformed by the grace of God. But that's not where he started. But here's the thing about Jacob even now. Even at this moment of his life, lying, manipulating, struggling with his brother, being nasty. He's being nasty here. Religiously nasty. Swear to me now. Why did he say swear to me now? Because swear to me in the sight of the family God. Swear to me in the sight of Elohim. Swear to me in the sight of the God of Abraham. He's being religiously nasty to get an advantage, any kind of advantage. But why? Jacob values the promises. Jacob actually values the promises that come with the birthright. Isn't that amazing? You know, in in my mind, I've got this picture. Family eating around a campfire at night and Isaac sharing the family history with his children, talking about the God who appeared to his father Abraham, talking about the promises given to his father Abraham, telling them that he, Isaac, I've inherited these promises and God's promise is that we will possess all of this country around about us. One day, everything here will be ours. Kings will be coming from our line. God says through us, all the world will be blessed. And Jacob, he's a little sinner. He's a sneak. He's a fighter. But Jacob's sitting there saying, the promises of God. What could be better? I want the promises of God. I'll do whatever I can to lay hold of the promises of God. I'll do anything I can to get hold of the promises of God. And Esau's sitting there. Same family discussion, same campfire. Promises of God, promises of God. We don't own a damn thing. All we own is a graveyard. Promises of God, promises of God. 
There's beautiful girls over in the city over there. I wish Dad had shut up. I want to go pay him a visit. Promises of God, promises of God. Boring. You get the picture? You see, we preach the gospel to anybody who will listen. To anyone. Why? Because we don't know who God's going to call to salvation. We haven't got the faintest. It's not printed on anyone's forehead. There's not a tattoo on the believer's back, magically put there by God. There's no such thing. Who's going to believe? Who are they? Where are they? When are they going to believe? Who knows? You know, the the salvation testimony of the saints, the things that they're called out of, absolute idolatry, houses full of idols. One man walks in and shares the scripture and the family is called by God. One person at a time. And then there are the children of believers who refuse to believe and then there are the children of believers who can't remember a day when they didn't believe. All of this is the grace of God. All of this is the grace of God, the working of God's Holy Spirit. God calling. And so we share the gospel with all and sundry. Because we have no idea who's going to put their faith in the Lord Jesus. We have no idea who God is going to call. There are people who, when they hear the promises of God, they want them. When they hear the offer of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, they want it. Sinners that they might be. And that's why I love Jacob. You know, I always figure if God can take a Jacob and turn him into a saint, God can take a Scott. And turn him into a saint. I always, I always just feel like, you know, this is, to me, it's one of the most encouraging narratives in all of Scripture. God's work of grace in the life of Jacob. Till he's made a prince in the sight of God. So, my friends, let's um, close with some thoughts or some applications. Point one that I've got in applications is that salvation is by electing undeserved grace. God saves whom he will, when he will, where he will, by the means of awakening faith in the heart of a sinner. Granting new life. We spread the message, but God does the saving. It's that simple. Point two. That which is right in the sight of the world is not necessarily right in the sight of God. Don't let the customs of the people around about us dictate our way of life. They should not. They ought not. They should never. We live according to the word of God. I don't care what the world says is right. I'm asking the question, what does God say? We do not live according to the ways of the world. Point three, my friends, and this one I I want us to really think about and take home. Watch your words. Speak very carefully in the sight of God and remember you're always in the sight of God. Think of some of these um, exhortations in Scripture. Let's have a look at a few of them. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. We'll read from verse 33. Matthew 12, 33. 
Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good food and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. That which you say indicates the state of your heart. And God is actually hearing every word that comes from our mouth. Better to speak less than to speak foolishly. Better to speak less than to speak wickedly. Watch the words that come out of your mouth. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Starting at verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous must not be even named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And... (coughs) And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. Let there be, verse 4, no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And I'll read you a verse from Exodus chapter 23, verse 13. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Don't even speak of such things. My friends, we all fall by the words that come out of our mouths. I'm warning you. I'm warning myself. I need to hear these warnings as well as you do. We all fall by the words that come out of our mouths. Be careful what you say. Do not joke about things that are holy, especially do not joke about things that are that are basically set in private by God. Do not make such jokes. Watch your words speak very carefully in the sight of God. What did Jesus say? For by your words you will be condemned. This warning goes to all of us. This warning comes to me. Esau did not care what he said. 
He did not care whether he was speaking honestly. He did not care whether his yes was yes or his no was no. He did not care about the things of God. He did not care when he swore that he would give or sell his birthright to his brother. He did not care. That's a hardened sinner, hardened in heart. The less a person cares about their sin, the more hardened they are. The more casually they sin, the more hardened they are. We who claim to be the people of God ought to appear to be the people of God. I confess before you that I sin with my mouth. I am far from perfect. I need this warning. You need this warning. Speak wisely in the presence of God. And if we are in Christ, our whole lives are lived in the presence of God. And there's no escape. As I say it, I also say God is gracious. Jesus died for our sins. His blood cleanses us of our sins. There is hope, my friends. When we confess our sins in 1 John, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm glad I see serious faces as I give out this warning, but I don't want you to walk out with the warning being the only thing you take home. God is gracious and merciful. Confess your sins, seek forgiveness in Jesus' name and remember the promise of God that forgiveness is given. You see, that's a promise. And like Jacob the sinner, we take hold of the promises. So let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we do indeed thank you for your word, the Holy Scriptures, and we thank you for the many warnings that you give us. We thank you, Father, that the Scripture prompts us in the way of wisdom and and directs us to walk in the way of holiness. Now, Father, we pray that the words that we have heard this day would sink deeply into our souls. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be obedient to that which you have spoken to us. Father, by the power of your spirit, may we be made indeed saints in the sight of God. Help us, Father, to do that which is fitting and right and to be Christ-like in all situations. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.